The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I said at the conclusion of the last hour, this book by Moltmann on the theology of hope, which is discussed and reviewed by these three papers, Christianity Today, the Presbyterian of the South, and the Reformed Journal. Now, what seems to me, in answer partly to Dr. Young's question, we have to keep in mind that these men are faithful to the modern philosophical position at all costs. They are secondarily trying to also teach the Christian religion. Now, we have seen that modern philosophy starts with Descartes, has empiricism and rationalism for background, and then comes into Kant with a notion of criticism as over against dogmatism, and that it is the critical, it is the presuppositions that make experience possible, he says. That is, you you have to have a notion of what lies underneath experience and what does lie underneath experience is the notion of a transcendental unity of apperception. Now, that means a, a universal self. Now, out of that comes the notion of Kant that to save science, you must say science deals with this dimension of causation, and religion deals with a dimension of freedom, of personality. Now, on this distinction, which is called ethical dualism by Richard Croner, everybody today, all movements agree, and this is the basis of the church union movement. If you will read some of the Roman Catholic theologians, and if you will read the, the documents of Vatican II, which Dr. Berkhauer is so enthusiastic about that he thinks that there, is a, there are evidences of the interest of recent Roman Catholic theologians and even of Vatican II itself of an interest of coming closer to the Protestant view. They are interested in coming closer to a Protestant view, namely the new Protestant view. Namely, the view that is based on this existentialist notion. Existentialism comes out of Kant's criticism. You have idealism, and then pretty soon you've got existentialism. Soren Kierkegaard. Now, the new Protestant movement, which has these great exponents, Paul Tillich and Richard Niebuhr, or Reinhold Niebuhr and Richard Niebuhr, and Nels Ferre and many others, and Paul and Bultmann, of course, and Barth and Brunner, and many more. Now, they can all agree, and I told you, I think, at the beginning, that Hans Urs von Balthasar, who is a Roman Catholic theologian, wrote a book on Karl Barth in which he said the 
analogia entis idea of the Roman Catholic Church isn't as bad as what Bart thinks it is, and that Bart's own idea of analogia fidei, analogy of faith, is not really different. You've got to have some being, and you've got to have some faith, and both have it. Now, he says the historic Roman Catholic Church always had the primacy of faith, and therefore the same thing that Bart now has. And therefore, he says, the Roman Catholics and Karl Barth can get together, and they can together stand over against what he calls the reformers, a line virksomkeit Gottes, that is the determination, determinism of the Protestant position, the Calvinist position, but also the original Lutheran position, that God controls whatsoever comes to pass. Now, we have seen that the Roman Catholic position is a combination, has historically been a combination, between Aristotle's notion of analogy of being in which there is pure contingency and pure abstract rationality, kept in balance. That's the analogia, source of the analogia entis idea. Well, you can understand why Barthianism and New Protestantism which is based on this modern Kantianism, as it expresses itself in existential philosophy, in which you again have absolute nominalism of freedom and determinism, related a little differently, but they have in common this form-matter scheme of ancient thinking and the nature-freedom scheme that comes from Barth. They have in common that man is autonomous, that the facts are just there, that man must bring these facts into systematic relation, that man has to string all the facts together, string all the beads, and no two of the beads have holes in them and are therefore stringable. Now that means that, you see, uh, Pilate and Herod have become friends. That is to say, new Protestantism and Roman Catholicism are now rapidly uniting together. You can see that in the movements. All the churches, first of all, among Protestants, are gradually uniting together. Why shouldn't they? Nobody knows the truth. Everybody's theology is just as good as everybody else's, and so let's all have one big organization. And why should we any longer keep out the Roman Catholics from union with us? And then the Jews can come in, too, because the Jews have this I, it, this famous Jew, I can't now again for the moment think of his name, Martin Huber. Now his I-thou scheme comes right straight out of Cantu. In other words, Martin, Jew and Gentile, Roman Catholic and Protestant, New Protestants, they are all able to unite on this plan. And that means that they can all agree, and the only ones that can't join this new Kokyu, or whatever it is, this new comprehensive church, are the fundies. The Hindus can, but the fundamentalists cannot. And you can't, for sure, because you are worse than the fundamentalists. <laughs> so far as you are reformed, in the nature of the case you are, because, you see, fundamentalism, lots of it is still, to an extent, Arminian, and has a measure of the notion of free will, and any theology that has autonomy or free will in it, to any extent, is welcome to just to that precise extent. 
So if you are really reformed in your thinking, then you, in the nature of the case, will not be welcomed to this new union of all churches in the Christ event. Now, the Christ event is what unites everything and everybody together. It unites all churches, Protestants, all Roman Catholics, with all Protestants, all Hindus, and all pagans, because they all are in the Christ event. Therefore, the Christ event is not identical with what happened in Palestine. Now, what is now happening in, is the effort to get beyond all this, so far as Pannenberg and Moltmann and others are concerned, and the quest for the new historical Jesus. And you will, in that statement, or in that paragraph out of Dr. Henry's review that I read to you, you will see that he recognizes himself that this is still essentially an attempt to improve on the, on the theology of Karl Barth and uh, Boltmann and the others, to go beyond that for a greater recognition of history. Because, you see, it is very obvious that the resurrection on Barth's system is not uh, to be identified with anything that takes place in history. It's up there primarily, even if there is something that nobody can explain that has taken place in this causal relationship. They want to get more genuine significance for history, and well they may, but they can't do it. They haven't the equipment, they haven't the tools, the machinery with which to do it. So as long as you are faithful to this principle, Pannenberg remains faithful, Moltmann remains faithful, they all remain faithful the new quest of the historical Jesus people. And you see several of these little books, New Directions in Theology, I guess, I suppose you get them as we do. Now, this is an attempt to do more justice to history and to, you, to relate that other world more directly and more significantly to the causal, to the world of causation. But they cannot escape the inherent absolute antagonism between a world that is run by causation, which is absolute determinism, and a world of absolute freedom, which is out of relationship, pure freedom. Now, Moltmann's theology is built up out of these self-same ingredients. Now, even every other modern theologian has really essentially attempted the same thing. They must, all of them, overcome this dualism, this ethical dualism. In terms of Kant's critique of practical reason, you remember Kant says that we know nothing theoretically of the world beyond, but we know something practically. Now, practically doesn't mean that you're good with your hands or something like that, of course, but it means that for practical purposes, in order to give ourselves the best account of our own sense of autonomy and freedom, that we are responsible Therefore, though we know nothing, we have to know in another sense of the word know. That is to say, we know practically. And therefore, we believe. And that belief is therefore a purely non-rational uh, assertion of something. And somebody, we ought to get this gentleman to say, Faith is no leap in the dark. <laughs> no? Uh, no. <laughs> Well, faith. <laughs> Will you say it a minute, please? <laughs> huh? it, it, it wasn't close to me. 
as to interpretation. There is a common ground in that you are a creature of God as I am a creature of God. We're both made in the image of God. You don't believe that, though, so that's not how you interpret man. We receive this on authority. We have philosophically worked up this idea of man. We have accepted on authority this total Christian position about God, about his creation of the world, of man's fall, of man's attempt to hold under the truth in unrighteousness, and of Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, coming down, dying in his human nature for our sins in our room instead, and rising again for our justification, and that if we, by the Holy Spirit's regenerating power, believe and accept him, then we are saved. We have the truth, we possess it, we do not penetrate it exhaustively. There's always bound to be the apparently contradictory because God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. We are finite, we are dependent. Therefore, in the nature of the case, you must not attempt to prove the Christian position by saying that you can make it answer to the law of contradiction as such. The law of contradiction is the law that God has implanted in the creature made in his image. Now, a creature made in God's image should therefore use that law and all the laws of thought as instruments by which the better to order for himself the material of God's revelation, redemptive and natural, in order that bringing out thus the multiplicity of the glorious revelation of God all to the glory of his grace and to his glory of his name. But you must not do what Dr. Clark does. He believes this position theologically, and then when he goes to defend it, he joins with all other historical Protestant defenders, that is, so far as the Butler type of analogy is concerned. And look, he says, now our position is more logical. And I'll show you that it's more logical, or that it's absolutely logical. And then, but at the end of this little article to which I referred in the Moody Press publication, Can I Trust My Bible? Then he says, but not absolutely, because it may all be chance. Well, don't you see? That is making possibility, abstract possibility. Back of God. Here God is the source of possibility. Nothing can be or happen except that which is within and according, in accordance with the plan of God. Here he is willing to take all this and to say it's a more logical and more acceptable hypothesis. Now, that's just exactly what Satan wanted man in paradise to do. Not to accept this on authority and to say that if you eat the persimmons, you will surely die. That is what is ordained. Nothing could possibly happen to you but death, because it is thus ordained by God. Now, over against that, Satan says, now look, that's one way of looking at it. That's an hypothesis. My hypothesis is that the opposite will happen. Now, how dare we Christians, and how can we consistently, if we are Calvinists, then do what we know theologically to be directly against the commandments of God. The requirement of God is that we shall accept him at his word, that nobody knows but he knows, and that he alone was in a position to know because he alone 
has ordained all things and controls all things. Now, if there's anybody that stresses the all-inclusiveness of God's ordination of all things, it's Dr. Clark. And if anybody holds to the true biblical position of the Bible as the infallible word of God, it's Dr. Clark. All honor to him. But then why does he turn right around and join all of the historic Arminian defenders of the Christian faith in appealing to autonomous man and say, look, you've got a hypothesis, we got a hypothesis, ours is better than you. Now, why is ours better? Because it's more according to the law of logic. I mean, the law of contradiction. Well, the point is that what we should do and what Clark as a Calvinist theologian virtually does is to say that the law of contradiction just cannot work in a chance universe. The difference between our position and that of others is not that ours is more logical or less logical. We're not. Faith is not a leap in the dark, but <laughs> neither is faith, don't you see, something that is in accordance with the law of contradiction. The issue is not whether it is more or less in accordance with the law of contradiction. The point is that the law of contradiction can't operate in a vacuum. And don't you see, on this basis, it has to. You've been through these revolving doors. You've got the big department stores here in town with revolving doors, I dare say. Oh, this gentleman was just in a Wanamaker store in Philadelphia playing the famous organ there. Well, he went through one of these revolving doors. Now, suppose that you have a revolving door and here's non-entity, that's nihil, and here's nothing, or whatever you want, what language you have. Here's the vacuum, and here's the vacuum. Now, this door has, the pin has to rest on nothing, and it, up above it also has to be nothing. And then it revolves. Does it revolve? It doesn't revolve. From nothing into non-being. If you could revolve, don't you see? The whole point is that we must not grant that on any but the Christian position, logic has application to reality. Now, I hope I can make that point, if nothing else. That is to say, we should not say, look, our position is more rational than yours, because it's more according to the law of contradiction. It's absolutely rational. Yours is absolutely irrational. It is absolutely rational, not in the sense that we can absolutely see through the relationships of God to man. We can't. We never shall. God is God and his all-comprehensive control and our sense of responsibility will always appear to us apparently contradictory. Not really it isn't, but we have to believe that it isn't. Well, now, don't you see? Then for argument's sake, we say to him, now how could you talk about one hypothesis being better than another's. How could science work? You need this in order to have the idea of hypotheses work. Hypotheses have to work within a system of truth, not a system, but within the only existing system of truth. Don't you see? Otherwise, it is in the air. Now, that is the difference between a Butler analogy approach and what seems to me to be a Reformed approach. 
Now, therefore, don't you see, obviously, that the Reformed faith has come to the kingdom for such an hour as this, and that you boys have come to this seminary for such an hour as this, that you are not to continue doing what is being done by Dr. Carnell, by Dr. Clark, by Dr. Buswell, and good Christian people who are the new evangelicals. They are not answering the neo-Orthodox. They want to keep in touch with the neo-Orthodox because that's the movement going in theology and with existentialism and philosophy. Well, now you see with your own eyes what they have to do. This dialogue on the resurrection. Here comes Dr. Anderson, I think it was, that gave that speech at Harvard. He was a fine fundamentalist man. He was, he's a Britisher. He was invited to Harvard to lecture as a visiting teacher. And he was asked to give this lecture. And Dr. Clowney was there at the time. I think it was on that occasion that he was there. And so he, in typical fashion, does what has always been done, as, oh, the resurrection is very likely true, because, don't you see, these people were good people and they didn't lie, and why shouldn't this be the case? It's more probably true. Well, the point should be that Nothing is more probably true than anything else because David Hume can come right along and says the idea of probability in a world of chance is a meaningless something. Now, look here. Here's a puppy and here in the show window. Now, that puppy has taken two steps in this direction. So you predict the puppy will land there, don't you? Huh? Right? Okay. You're caught. <laughs> All right. Where does the puppy land? Well, here or there or there or there. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a puppy. <laughs> Would it? All right. Now that's a puppy in a show window. He's confined. But now put that puppy in a vacuum. Put it in an infinitely extended, bottomless vacuum. And then you have one drop of water that's starting a current this way. Now, are you going to predict anything whatsoever as being more probable as to where that thing is next going to? Of course you can't. There is no answer to David Hume when he says that in a world of chance, there is no meaning to the word probability. That is, every chance is equal with every. If you say God probably exists, my good old professor, William Brenton Green at Princeton Seminary, he was a saintly man of God. We all loved him. He had a weak voice because he was getting old, and Dr. Hodge once told me he had never eaten enough red meat. <laughs> now, whether or not that was the reason. <laughs> anyway, he walked, when I was there, he walked very slowly through Princeton. His wife was a step ahead of him, always. <laughs> but he had worked this all out to great detail. It's very probably true, don't you see? Now, the story goes that when he was young, his brother was in the racetrack, and he was sitting in the seat outside, and there when his brother came down, he says, Increase your velocity. <laughs> and the second time his brother came around, he says, Accelerate your speed. <laughs> and the third time he came around, he says, Go like 
Please don't tell any of the faculty members that, will you? <laughs> well, now, that sainted professor, he was reformed as reformed could be, but he had taken Butler's analogy as B.B. Warfield, that great man of God, that greatest, I dare I say it, of American theologians, I think he is, Daphne, Gerard Doe, and Thornwell notwithstanding. <laughs> Charles Hodge, even. Very well. At least, the, perhaps the most brilliant and versatile, certainly sound Reformed theologian, he nevertheless writes the article on apologetics in one of the great uh, dictionaries. Uh, I forget the title of it. Now, and then it's all on this probability approach. Now, probability fits in with Arminianism, with Romanism. It doesn't fit either, because nothing fits in Arminianism or in Romanism, in the basic sense of the term. But the point is that it does not fit in with the Reformed faith. If anything must be excluded, it is the insult of the living God that you say that God, what he says, is probably true. Now, some of you are married, and suppose you say to your wife, Honey, I probably love you. You slap you in the face. Won't you? She certainly ought to slap you in the face if she doesn't. Well, the point being that probabilities do not properly belong between your God, your Christ, who didn't probably die on the cross, and you shouldn't think that it's very probable that he did, and it's very probable that the regeneration work of the Spirit has, is in your heart. You are insulting the triune God if you speak of his work as probably true, don't you see? Because only that can exist which he says is true. Therefore, it's absolutely true or not true at all. Truth is truth or truth isn't truth. Now, therefore, don't you see what we are called upon to do as Reformed Christians to take over the lead from the new evangelicalisms who are failing to do what they are undertaking to do. The new evangelicals, Gordon Clark and then Carnell, now, I have that little book on the case for Calvinism. There were three people. Uh, one of them was Hargern, who was the case for New Orthodox Theology. You may have seen that little book. And the other one is Carnell, the case for Orthodox Theology. And the third one is Theology and Liberal Perspective by D. Wolfe. I was interested to see in Martin Luther King's funeral that this man, D. Wolfe, was Martin Luther King's professor in the New England School of Theology and his promoter and supervised his doctoral work. And he was asked to come. Now, he is, of course, a modern liberal Methodist. Now, they have streamlined, conscientized modern Methodism. That's their institution. They asked me, a rock-ribbed, hopeless, orthodox Calvinist, <laughs> to come to speak to them, mind you, for a week, almost. And, I, and then they asked me, I asked, what would I speak on? Some, I thought, I suppose I'd better take some peripheral subject so there wouldn't be any major clashes. Clashes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, I was to speak on Boston personalism. In other words, their own point of view. How did it look from here? And so I wrote back, that was fine, and I would do that at their request. 
but that I might then have to spank the children of my host. And that wouldn't be pleasant. So when I was introduced by the chairman of the evening, about 40 people, including the ladies of the faculty, then this gentleman told about that. And so he says, Doctor, bend, bend over. He says, bend over to get ready to get that spanking which I had promised them. Well, I did it as mildly as I could in as good a manner, suave terin modo, that mild in your manner, forti terin re. That is, I said, now you people have, of course, rebelled against uh, this uh, absolute idealism as all modern theology has. You want to start with human personality. And you got this, as you think, from Wesley, who over against uh, Calvin was emphasizing the freedom of man. But wouldn't it be a little better if you went back to Wesley? The point being, of course, then they'd at least have the gospel, don't you? <laughs> but they didn't have the gospel and because they are conscientized Wesleyans and therefore are now ready to be conjoined with all conscientized Calvinists at Princeton. Well, that is the situation. Carnell had his training under Brightman at the University of Boston School of Theology. He studied with us, and then in his book, the first book on Christian apologetics, he starts out some places very fine, that is, the Bible is the word of God, and what it says is true because it says it. And then he turns right around in complete inconsistency with that. See, with that, he says the rational man is the one who judges. And he has as his tool with which to judge the law of contradiction. That's the fourth book of Aristotle's Metaphysics. And if you don't make peace with the fourth book of law of Aristotle's Metaphysics, then canals. Then you are done. Now, in another book, he has the moral man the moral man. And later on, he has the axioms of a decent society. Axioms of a decent society. Christ lives up to those axioms. Now, everybody flunks, all of them except Christianity, which passes magna cum laude, because it answers to the law of contradiction, it answers to the requirements of Kant's moral man, it answers to the axioms of a decent society. Now I ask you, my friends, is that challenging unbelief with the gospel? It is not. Sad to say, I'm not for one moment suggesting that Carnell was not himself a sound, good, evangelical Christian. He was. Shortly before his death, he reasserted his belief in the absoluteness of the revelation of God through Christ in the scriptures. But then, in total inconsistency with that, in order to get on the common ground with the modern world, the modern man, then he will take over Brightman's position for whom human logic is legislative and for whom Christianity must be what Kant's philosophy says that it must be. Now, so much for, I have no time to go into, nor need I to do so, in Dr. Clark's position, there are many writings in which you can see this, but this little one that I referred you to is very easy to, see, to observe. And Carnell, now there are many others, and I would like for any of you to ask any questions. My point is, 
that they are still today falling back on this Butler analogy type of thing, which has shown itself so absolutely futile. If anywhere they've shown it is in this dialogue on the resurrection, which is right here reported in this issue of Christianity Today, in which three men answer Dr. Anderson, and of course Anderson has no refutation, nothing with which and Dr. Pennock can't usher one iota tittle of factuality. He's absolutely right, but he can't produce the evidence that he is right. He's absolutely right as a believing Christian, but he's falling back again on Butler's analogy in order to answer. And Butler's analogy cannot answer David Hume. So the unbeliever always can tell you what you haven't proved, just like in Justin Martyr's case, when Trypho the Jew said, will you now show me, Justin, that Jesus is the Christ? Not that he probably is and that he could be that, but that he is. And then Justin always has to say, well, it's time to quit, boys, to quit today. Let's come back and try it again tomorrow. Can that question ever be answered? No, it can never be answered unless you start with it. Unless you start to simply say, Christ says, I am. That's the whole point. And that is the moral of the whole story, that you are attempting the impossible. You're not only attempting the impossible, you are attempting what insults your own Savior. If you attempt to prove him as he is the Christ by something outside of him, which does not mean that the miracles that he wrought are not evidence, as Jesus himself says. If you believe me not for my words, believe me for my works. But Jesus never does what this does, is to cut these miracles loose from the person of Christ and then take them as miracles. You don't cut your arms off, throw one here and the other there, in order to prove that they belong to you. Do you? Or that they are evidence of you. In other words, here, the facts are first cut loose from creation and redemption. Now, they hang together. They are what they are, and their power of proof springs precisely from the fact that they couldn't be anything other than that. They die, your arms will die, if you, they're separated from you, the living organism. Now, any fact has no longer any evidential value in it, don't you see, if it is not based upon and related to Christ. Now, I said a while ago that you should have an opportunity for questions. I'd like just one second to say something about the papers that those of you that are taking this for credit. You may write, as far as I'm concerned, about any subject. Now, uh, I'd like for you to do a good deal of reading on it, and I believe, when does your term end? What is it about approximately? Well, now, why don't you make 23 or 24th of May the end for handing in these papers here to the office? That will give you to do a chance to do a lot of reading on this. It's not much good for yourself or for me if you, on the basis of the few things I said, try to say something. And you'll get more credit if you read a lot. Tell me how many pages you've read and what you've read. So the better, you better read good literature. You know what good literature is. Good reform literature. And, uh, and read a lot of it, and then uh, give your analysis of it, and you can do this subject or that subject, as far as I'm concerned, general apologetics.
Do you want to say something about it, Mr. Smith? Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I was now thinking that all the others, any of the others, might be given more freedom to write. Say, if someone wants to write, particularly on Bardianism, that's all right with me. In any of those papers that you would write, you would reveal whether you have grasped something of the methodology of apologetics, how it how it applies to Karl Barth or to Boston personalism. If you want to read, if you want to deal with Carnell, you can read his books and read my criticism of him if you wish. So if there's any question on that, and then you'll have time to do a great many pages of reading, and please write me some good, long, full, critical papers, will you? I mean critical in the sense of evaluation, and I don't mind reading long papers at all. Don't have pity on me because I'm old and think you can read more than 10 pages. <laughs> I, can, I can still read a good 25, 35 page paper, and uh, that'll give you something to set your teeth in and something worthwhile to produce, and then you'll be proud of it later, right? <laughs> now, please ask any questions you will. Yes? Dr. Van Til, would you sort of uh, try and try to get it for us just briefly? Uh, Bart and the goddess did the album. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, he is. Emmanuel Kant. Now, you'll think Kant is the servant of Satan himself. Well, he has done more in modern times to bring the anti-Christian position centrally in connection with the autonomy of man. Now, that general conscience position in philosophy, in existential philosophy, underlies Boltmann's approach. That's why he demythologizes the gospel. For Boltmann, this is the world of causation, and that world in which orthodoxy spoke of as having the resurrection in its creation must be demythologized, right? Must, must be purified. Therefore, when you first fumigate or demythologize this, and then you restate existentially that is in terms of self-authenticating personality, which idea he gets from, uh, from existential philosophers, Martin Heidegger in particular. Self-authenticating, which means self-asserting, self-sufficient. Now, this is what demythologizing does. Now, this is what they all have done. Now, Karl Barth has demythologized the orthodox position just as much as Bultmann has. Now, Bultmann gets all the blame for being a bad boy because he demythologized and says this is a three-decker three universe, just like a hamburger, you know. This is earth, this is hell, and that's earth, and that's heaven, and who can believe any such thing as that? Well, Barth says the same thing. Ein sprechende Schlange kann ich so wenig wie jemand anders glauben. Or anything like that, das, pro, das profane es gibt. All right, now you take the God is dead theologians. What are they doing? They are doing precisely the same. And Van Buren, by the way, we have a claim to one of them. He lives in Philadelphia. <laughs> He's at Temple University. Now, and his name has a van in it. That helps too. <laughs> Van Buren 
studied under Bart and wrote his dissertation under Bart. Now, he has agreed with Bart, but he thinks that Brunner and Bart and Boltman do not carry out the logic of their position. Now, here's an attempt on the part of Pannenberg and von Moltmann and others to improve on Bart, to make him more Christian. These boys say, oh yes, we too are Christians. You see, these boys are definitely, they are God is dead theologians, but they are not anti-Christian theologians. They are Christian ministers and Christian professors, teachers in Christian institutions, at least one of them is. Well, the point is, that they are still saying, applying the same thing, we can know nothing of God. There is no God so far as our knowledge is concerned. So far as our knowledge of God is concerned, he is dead. He's practically dead. Now, they are right. They are more consistent than Bart, is it so? They're much more consistent than these other men. We know nothing of that God. Then, for all practical purposes, he has not revealed himself to us his claim is not upon us. His threats are not upon us. His promises not, are not above us. So, let's then do what Bonhoeffer has told us to do. And Bonhoeffer is one of their chief saints, if not the chief saints. Of course, Nietzsche, historically, who said God is dead, but Nietzsche is too coarse a philosopher. Let's take Bonhoeffer, the great hero, martyr of the, of the Hitler regime. Now, Bonhoeffer himself believed in the theology of Barth and Brunner and those, and he went beyond them. And he said, therefore, we have to have a theology of Christ, of Jesus. We know nothing of God. We already have seen that for Barth too, Christ is the electing God, isn't that so? We know nothing of a God who isn't wholly revealed in this world. So Bonhoeffer talks, and Harvey Cox talks, as you know, about the secular city, and the kingdom of heaven is this secular city. And we ought to think about Christ as the man for others. Man for others. Now that's like Bart's mit mensen Jesu, fellow men with Jesus. Christ is the real man. He is the real authentic man. And we can become real authentic men if, like Christ, we follow him in giving ourselves for others. Now, that's plain humanism. Well, that's what Barthianism is too at bottom, you see. So they are not wrong when they claim Barth and these other great theologians as their parentage. What is wrong is, again, if we do what so many people do, give these poor God-is-dead theologians another kick and praise Barth to the sky as though he's an innocent of it. And Paul Tillich even, you know, they like to claim Paul Tillich as their granddaddy too and Paul Tillich sort of has been disowning them he's not living anymore now but he disowned them too well why should they disown them well you see their parent, their children are beginning to be a little bit more consistently true to their principles than they were themselves so the God is dead theology I would say is the logical outcome of it all now those are not bad people they're decent suburbanites <laughs> and, uh, and they are Christians who want to improve society and all of that sort of thing. And we ought to appreciate that. I mean that. That's common grace. But unfortunately, it's passed off as though that were Christianity. Now, I don't know if that answers your question. Any other? 
really stuck in the theology just last hour. Uh, if there is any connection between Bart, Christ's uh, event in history and Geschichte, and if there is, or if there's not, is it possible to be possible for the Christ's event uh, for our Now, will you repeat that? Is there any connection between Geschichte and his story? Yes. Right, that's your first point. Then what's your second point? Would, would the Geschichte event, or would the history event be possible without the Geschichte? Oh, I see. In the first place, yes. Well, to be sure, reality has two aspects. Historically, that's the causal aspect, but there's more to life. There is the freedom aspect, and there is the religious. Man is a religious animal, so he has to talk about a god. And that god is in the realm of the shifter. But then that god does come into this realm of historian. and that's incarnation. Therefore, the two are, two are first of all contrasted with one another, absolutely. That's ethical dualism. Then after they've been, and that's what... Croner says ethical dualism, but then ethical monism or is the final word. They are brought together again. You see, it is simply postulated that this God of which you can know nothing nevertheless comes in this world of history and reveals himself. They're holy, holy revealed, you remember? And then when he is in this world, and that's the positive connection, then he is holy heaven. Now, therefore, you can have this world by itself, the causal world of science, and a, and a secularist can talk about that world, and for him that world alone exists. And you can have your uh, positivists who say there is nothing beyond. But we who are religious people, they would say, do believe there is something beyond. Now, we agree that there is no metaphysics is possible. Kant said we're done with all metaphysics. And Hegel spoke of that as the old metaphysics, which nobody can believe anymore. To that extent, everybody is positivistic in that sense. But nevertheless, though we do not believe in the old metaphysics, we project in that world, into that world, and speak of a God who is the creator. And then we use all the Christian biblical terminology, terminology about his creating the world, about his redeeming the world. So then that is redeeming this world. And now Moltmann is trying to bring that other God close, more involved in this, get him more involved in his story. And the quest for the new historical Jesus consists precisely in getting that God of that world more involved in history. But it is always still impossible to do that after you have first separated man from God as the creator after you have first cut up the world into little indi bits of individual contingent existence which can never be brought together like the apples you've shaken off the tree they cannot be made to grow on the tree you can tie them on with strings again but you can't put an apple back on and as so far i don't suppose it has been attempted a heart transplant has been attempted for a human being but i haven't yet heard of an apple transplant uh, on a live branch again maybe it can be done i don't know but uh, at any rate that isn't the ordinary customary way of doing with apples now the the thing is that 
This is what they have done. They've shaken the apples off the tree, don't you see? And then they tie them on again. Now that just makes no sense. Well, it seems like uh, Beaumont's demythologizing is a logical end of uh, this Geschichte uh, and his story. And uh, when he says we have to demythologize all this because we can't believe in it yeah. in, in his story because it's the, the place of uh, time and sense and so forth. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is perfectly consistent. And therefore, it's consistent for him to demythologize and then to do the best he can when he wants to existentialize. Say, then what remains? What remains is the free man. And he is authentic to the extent that he is really free and that he really is a good man. And once the li Jesus was the authentic man, just like in Bart's case, the only real man for Bultmann, he's the only authentic man. Now he gets that from Heidegger's philosophy, you see. Self-existence, authentic existence, and inauthentic existence. Those are the categories for Heidegger. I don't want to be afraid in the future of trying to prove something, so maybe clear it up. Uh, Go ahead. Say anything. Uh, if they would claim the resurrection story by, from the Bible and it's claimed there, and then they to go on to try to prove it, uh, in two other ways, by the fact that his enemies couldn't have stolen his body and that his friends couldn't have. Is that uh, in error? Is that going on? Nothing is in error, my friend. You can do all of those things, and you should do all of those things. The Bible does all of those things. Paul does all of those things. If only you don't cut them loose like the apples off the tree, don't you see? That's the whole thing. Jesus himself appeals to miracles. And he says, I will be raised from the dead. And the resurrection of the dead is given as evidence of the divinity of Christ. But it is not cut loose. It is not something that swims in the ocean by itself. And then it is part of this living. And therefore you prove it at the same time. If you prove it at all, you prove that proof is something that has meaning only in the system of reality such as Christianity's is of which the resurrection is the center. Randy. Uh, Randy. What, what is the uniqueness of Christ for Bart? Since he's cut loose with all these facts from him, why does Christ light up these facts? He took them away from him. Right. What's unique about him now? Well, why does he still cling to him? Quite right, and that's a postulation. You see, he has, first of all, dualistically. Here are the causal world, and here's the resurrection in that causal world as a mechanical something. So far as the resurrection happened in this mechanical world, it has to fit into and be like every other event, predictable, causally. But then it must be different than that, and that's why it has primarily to be Geschichte. Well, then it's wholly other. Then you know nothing of it, because the only way you know anything is by causal relations. All right? Then you have to postulate. Postulate means that you say to be morally true what intellectually you know not to be true because you just have to have it. You say, look, I am free. As far when the psychologist or the psychiatry puts me on the couch, my empirical self and I have committed murder or I am abnormal in some way, then he puts me on the couch and he says, look, 
how about your parents? How about your... And Freud goes at your, at your it and your everything that's back. It's all within this, right? Very well. But nonetheless, in spite of that, I realize I am guilty. And therefore, I must be absolutely free. Which means autonomous, since it doesn't mean created freedom, you see. Therefore, the only alternative you have here, a, uni a conception of causality, which is autonomous, self-existent, working of nature according to laws which are inherent in itself, which are not created laws. You don't have a created laws here, you don't have created self. Therefore, you have taken the apples, shaken the apples off the tree. Therefore, you have a floating island of pure abstract causality here. And you have an infinite bottomless shore of ocean of chance underneath it, penetrating into it, seeping into it, the boat's leaking. And therefore, this whole thing is shipping, uh, sinking. It's on the way. Here's an island of ice. Starts from the Arctic Ocean, and there are ten men on it. Did you ever read that story? And then there were nine, then there were eight. There were ten men on an island, floating. And here's the equator. It's getting warmer and warmer. And it's getting narrower and narrower and narrower, you see? And the short one, who's the shortest here? Huh? Who's, the sh who's shorty? Nobody here. I think Mason is. All right, the first night out, no more Mason. <laughs> Mason has sunk through. Anybody seen Mason? No, nobody's seen Mason. Let's go on. All right. <laughs> we go on, and then there were eight. You see, then there were eight. Then seven. Then six. Then five. Then four. Take off. One. None. Zero. See? In other words, in the nature of the case, reality is this island of floating... Now, it's ice, don't you see? But ice is frozen water, isn't it? Therefore, fatalism is frozen chance. And therefore, since chance is the boiling cauldron of reality, an island of floating ice will disappear. All is meaningless. Everything. The solidity of the ice island and of the ice men that are on the ice island is the solidity of the frozenness of the same stuff which can absolutely disappear and thaw out into nothingness. Oh, there you go. Now, there is no way of meeting this. All modern theology is confronted with it, and this is the dilemma of modern science, that it has to combine pure factuality, absolute uh, laws, and it cannot do it. This is the philosophy, I mean the dilemma of modern philosophy that it has an authentic man free independently of a causal world. And never the twain can meet. And when they meet, they have to be related in an unintelligible way, as all of these men are trying to do. This is the dilemma of modern theology, that here you have modern science, which is sinking because of this dilemma, which modern philosophy on top of modern science, therefore sinking. Modern theology on top of them, by all means, we must be scientific. By all means, we must be existentialist philosophers. By all means, we must have a dialectical theology that sinks with modern science and modern philosophy. <laughs> In other words, the alternative, therefore the hopelessness of trying to answer this situation the way the new evangelicals are doing, my friends. It's a pity that good men, great good scholarly men, should attempt to do the impossible. The modern firebox 
smiles at them. There is throughout the writings of Karl Barth the figure of Feuerbach, and he always smiles, a satanic grin. When he sees these theologians trying to put the apples back on the tree, or trying to talk about a God who speaks Sinkrecht von Oven when they first shot him into the sky. And they say, your little own little children, when they grow up pretty soon, they'll see that that was good for them when they were children. But when they have become mature, they are no longer going to follow childish things, then they will demythologize with Bultmann. And they should. Well, so then, don't you see, new evangelicalism doesn't realize that modern man has come of age. What we need is epistemological self-consciousness in terms of our own biblical principles and by means of them challenge the world, as Paul said of unbelief, hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that the world by its wisdom knew not God. It pleased God in his sovereign grace to save them that believe. Now, I've almost forgetting you. Now, you're a good boy. What question do you have? <laughs> I'm just wondering where your father Clement fits in all this. Oh, well, he's a good man, a wonderful man. And I haven't got well acquainted with him. And I don't want to do him any, any, any injustice. But I think he's only recently come to look into this. And he's a New Testament man. But he has followed Francis Schaeffer over. And Francis Schaeffer does well. A wonderful piece of work. But he hasn't thought these things through too thoroughly either. And so Pinnock is once more, to an extent, as he says on page 59 or 60 or thereabout of his little book, uh, that Butler's analogy, idea, probability, that's the best you can do. Well, it isn't the best you can do. And I'm hoping, and please don't tell Pinnock that I mentioned even his name, because I don't want to antagonize Pinnock. I want to win him. I wish I could win the others too, but they're past winning. Clark is past winning, so is naturally Carnell. He's no longer living. When you get as old as I do and as I am, and Clark is already 65, you get too stubborn to change anymore. So I'm hoping that you people, the next generation, we always have to try to convert the next generation. Any other question? Thank you very much.